The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. to the True Ambition Podcast. My name is John Zink. I'm your host. And uh, today I'm sitting here with uh, Mr. Lane Marceau. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, John. Um, Lane is the president of uh, Northern California Shea Homes. Uh, a little bit about Lane. He was inducted into the California Home Building Foundation Hall of Fame in 2009. And in 2014, you chaired the Pacific Coast Builders Conference. Uh, he has a BS in uh, Management Science from University of California, San Diego, and an MBA in Finance and Accounting from the University of California, Irvine. Now, you've been with Shea Homes for 25 years. Yeah. Where's the commitment? <laughs> <laughs> so, you've got uh, your wife, Shelly. Uh, your kids are Colby, Clayton, Carly, and Chloe. Yeah. And a dog, Roxy. And we have to say, we have a dog, Bella, too. And a dog, Bella. Yeah. Sounds like a busy household. Yeah, it is. So uh, you're a Warriors fan. Right. So uh, one of the things you told me was that you love Steph Curry. What do you love so much about Steph Curry? You know, Steph's just the, he's the ultimate athlete and competitor. But I just like his approach to the sport and his approach to life. He, um, he's got a lot of character. Um, you know, on and off the court. I, I just think of him, I always think, you know, if you're a marketing company, how much you'd want Steph Curry to represent your product, you know, because he is, uh, he's prepared, he plays hard, but very rarely, you know, he, he's intense and once in a while he'll get in arguments on the court, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, he's not like Draymond. Not like that. <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe they're on the same team sometimes. You know, it's that's the kind of guy that you know he'd help the he'd help the guy if he knocked him down to get up if he's on the other team as compared to just shining on and walking away. So. Yeah, he's the kind of guy you want to play with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I uh, I love watching some of the old film of him as a a kid just out there shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting right. and watching some of that history. So I'm a big fan of his too. Yeah. I'm not a Warriors fan. I'm not actually even a basketball fan. I love playing basketball, right. but watching that guy. You know, it was almost like back in my days, back in Illinois, watching Jordan yeah. and uh, that the Bulls. Yeah, so they, they did the uh, him and his father play on the up in Edgewood that celebrity tournament oh, golf, yeah. and watching also the dynamic of him and his dad is really fun to see too. You know, the competitive juice there, and then he has his brother Seth, who's also in the NBA, right? And so all three of them. You know, great family in terms of how they support each other, but then you see that competitive juice that they have even when they go against each other. Yeah, I think it was a few years ago. Didn't they have a competition between the two of them? Whoever lost had to jump in the water. Yeah, they did it again this year too. Oh, did they really? Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, I'm a big music guy. You know that about me. Yeah. Uh, just uh, full disclosure, we're friends, and uh, I actually bought a Shea home, and that's how. Uh, we met, um, but uh, I, I asked everybody, what, what, what's your favorite band? And uh, you said? 
Aerosmith. Aerosmith. Seen him a couple of times, you know, Steven Tyler somehow. I mean, I don't, he's got to be in his 70s, I'm going to guess. Amazing. And uh, his energy on stage and his ability still to belt it out. And then he hosted one of the shows, uh, I don't know if it was X Factor or, or one of the singing shows. And he was just, you know, just laid back and cool. And but but still, you know, he was entertaining even in that forum, you know, uh, fun guy for sure. Well, he's he's the consummate performer. Yeah. You know, sure. he just he's there to make people right. smile. Right. He's there to make people happy. And it's effortless. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Opens up his mouth. and just, yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, playing in bands my whole life back in the day, you know, Toys in the Attic, that whole album. Yeah. You know, I just loved playing all those songs on drums. Yeah. I could never sing it. It's way too high for me. Yeah, it's still one of my, you know, take the boat out in the middle of Lake Tahoe in the evening and oh. crank the stereo system, get a little Aerosmith on there. There's just nothing better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great music. And then, uh, you know, I, I graduated high school in 1990. And then, you know, after they got sober or whatever, they came back and just, mm. you know, went crazy. Oh, it was after Run DMC remade Walk This Way, and then yeah. they came out and had a resurgence, but yeah. yeah. So you grew up in San Jose. Now, no, I was born in San Jose, I didn't really grow up there. Oh, you didn't? No. Okay. Yeah. So where did you grow up at? I grew up in Mission Viejo, down okay. in Orange County. Okay. Yeah. I moved, we moved from San Jose when I was, I think, five years old, and, and uh, lived in Mission Viejo all for gosh, until I went to college. And, and even when I was in college, I was coming back and forth to that as the hometown. Uh, went to Michigan High School. And, okay. Yeah, so it was, a, it was a great community. It was a, to be honest with you, it was one of the things as a young kid to see, it was one of the first master plan communities, almost really in the United States, in terms of a planned community that had community centers, rec centers, the swim team. If you've ever heard of the Natadors, I swam on the Natadors as a kid, they were, one of the best swim teams in the nation. A lot of the uh, kids swimming went to the Olympics. And the reason I say that is over the years in Shea, I became a master plan developer and I always mm. would reflect back on living in the town of Mission Viejo and what amazing job they did back then before anybody was thinking about uh, you know, really analyzing how to build a small city and having all the elements that speaks to family, good education, safety, you know, all the things that are important in a community. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, I grew up in a really small town and uh, uh, coming out here to California was the first time that I saw some of these uh, master plan communities and it's pretty cool because, yeah. you know, now I see it all over the place yeah. um, and it probably, um, but, Within five miles, you've got everything you'd ever want as far as restaurants, grocery stores, shopping, all that kind of stuff. Right. And then for me and my little boy, I got a two-year-old, you know, go right down the street and you're in a park. Yeah. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, for sure. So you talked about swimming. Were you a sports guy? Yeah, you know, I, I was uh, growing up, I was more individual sports, starting, like I said, when I was younger, uh, swimming. And then in, uh, in high school, I was more of a skier snow skier, water skier, ultimately that became wakeboarding. I was a skateboarder, um, and uh, but really probably from a competitive sports, volleyball was always my favorite. Okay, on the beach or? Both, okay. I, I grew up a lot on the beach, used to surf as well, because I live, you know, living in Southern California. 
So we'd surf a lot and then end up, you know, playing volleyball on the beach. At some points there, I was on the beach five days a week. You know? oh, yeah. And so that's kind of what we did. All my, almost all my kids, three of my four kids ultimately were on high school volleyball. In fact, Chloe, my youngest now, she's 16. She's on the varsity team at Foothill High School. Colby, who's now 27, Colby's six foot five. He was middle blocker for Foothill High School back when he was going there. And then Clayton, who's 22 now, also played for Foothill on the varsity. And so they all were coached by the same coach, coach uh, Dusty Collins, yeah. And he's still coaching my daughter today. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's well, gonna be fun to go to the games and oh. well, that's what I'm I'm bummed about right now is I don't know she's going to practice, but I don't know as the season comes forward what they're going to allow. Oh, you know I'm like, please tell me the parents can come watch because I love watching volleyball, especially when my kids are playing. You know, um, and you know, and, they, and we we rally we rally together on our sport court all the time. I always have with the kids. I'm like their personal side coach, you know, and, <laughs> and even when they're playing, I, you know, they always kind of, my wife laughs, they peek up at me, right? Kind of like, cause they know if we have like almost sign language or, you know, and so sometimes she's trying to tell me, just don't be coaching them, let the coach coach them, right? <laughs> Turn around and go, dad, come on. Right, chill that guy out. Stands, right? so, yeah. uh, well, what kind of a student were you? I know I, I was a horrible student. Yeah, I, we, I talked a little bit in a couple of the podcasts about, uh, you know, having to beg a couple of teachers to listen. You don't want me back. I don't want to come back. Let's figure something out here. Right. Tell me about your uh, uh, school life. Um, surprisingly, I, I was a good. I was a good student. Uh, I was a dedicated, you know, student. Uh, being that I hung out, with, I hung out with different groups. But one of the groups I hung out with the guys who go surfing. And when you live in Southern California you have a way of missing class to get down if the, if the surf is good. Mm. And I didn't do that. I just, you know, the guys would always be going and I was dedicated to my studies. And so I didn't skip school to go surfing because that was a commitment I had to education. Not sure why, you know, sometimes I look back and think to myself, you probably should have ditched class a few more times and cut some good surf days. But, um, so no, I was a good student got good grades. I excelled in math. That was definitely, uh, and in English, I struggled. Um, I made it through it, but it was uh, painful for me. Um, but I, I would grind through the English courses and, you know, and didn't really have much inspiration for classes like history, probably like geography a little more and, and civics and that kind of, uh, those classes. Um, and I, I like music. I dabble in drums and I dabble in guitar. Uh, I'm not really very good at either, but I can play around with it. Um, but uh, no, I was a, a great math student to the point that they had to put me in the, they'd literally sit me in the corner when I would, when test time came, um, because I just, I wouldn't miss a problem. I mean, that just was, it just came so natural to me. That's why I ended up eventually being a math teacher. Well, that was my next question yeah. actually was, uh... Uh, go back to that for a second. It's so interesting, like when I was in school, band, chorus, some of the things I was interested in, right. sail right through. And I loved it. I loved being there for all of it. Yeah. And then I would sit there in other classes and just be daydreaming about other things. Yeah. You know, and it's so, so interesting. Like you're in math class and they just put you in the corner because like you're good. Yeah. You know, we, we can't teach him anything else on this right now. Um, <laughs> It's interesting then, 
I was uh, surprised when I dug into your past. It's like, how did you become a math teacher? Yeah. Tell me about that a little bit. Um, you know, I, it, it always, like I said, came easy to me. Um, it, it, just as you're speaking, made me think of something. I remember even when I was in sixth grade, we had a track and uh, track and field track. Yeah. And I finished the book because I was getting bored ahead of everybody by so many months. The teacher didn't know what to do with me. And so we were going to have a special Olympics come to our elementary school. And so she had me go convert the track from uh, our, our measurement system to the metric system because <laughs> she literally didn't know what to do with me. So I got to go sit out the track and field and kind of re readjust the track for that. But that's kind of the thing that so just and I, I'm, I'm not saying I saw it as fun. It just kind of came easy to me. But and that and so then when I went into college, my undergrad degree was in management science, which basically is a is an economics degree with a few accounting classes that were that's what they uh, in, in a UC system. They didn't have business degrees. I think I think only UC Berkeley was the one that actually had a business degree. Okay, they would have economics degrees in the UC system back then, and I still think today it's that way. Um, and uh, so um, I was going to UC San Diego doing good and I was actually behind after my first two years the counselor says you know you need to get caught up you're behind at four to six units so I took 20 units my next semester and I was able to handle it and so I just kept doing that mm. and next thing I know I graduated from college in three and a half years now I'm sitting around going maybe that wasn't so smart because I'm living down at Cardiff by the sea and all of a sudden I'm going, well, I don't want to leave the beach. You know, I've got this, I got, literally could grab my surfboard and walk down to the surf break. But now, you know, I've graduated. I don't really want to get a real job yet because my buddies are still there. They're going to school, but I need beer money. So um, <laughs> what am I going to do for a job? And so I put in a, uh, an article as a, as a math tutor. And before I knew it, I had 25 to 30 kids and I went from, you know, $15 an hour to like $75 an hour because I was in high demand and I was having to literally tell parents, I, I don't have time, I can't do it. And um, having fun surfing and doing that and enjoying time with my college buddies still. And before I know it, I get a phone call because three or four of the students I was teaching uh, all went to this private high school and they needed a new math teacher. And I get a call and from the principal and before I know it, I'm a, I'm a math teacher and I'm 21 years old. And that's what I did for the next four years to help finance going. Uh, first, I went back uh, the first year of teaching. I, I studied and got my real estate broker's license, California real estate broker's license. The next year I studied for and got my series seven stockbroker's license. And then um, the next two years while I was teaching, I went back to UC Irvine. That's when I got my master's in finance and accounting. So in those four years while I was teaching, it helped finance my ability to continue to educate myself, which at some point it was like, maybe you should go get a real job because you know all, all these degrees and licenses aren't making you any money. Let me ask you a question about that. So that was one of the questions was you have in the beginning so many different things you were kind of looking at the stockbroker, the CPA, what were you just interested in learning more or were you kind of at that time going, I'm going to get ready for wherever I'm going to go. Yeah. And in order to do that, I'm going to make myself ready to make that jump for whichever direction I go. Yeah. Um, 
A little bit of both. I mean, I think it, I was somewhat of a sponge of the learning, you know, always saying that once you learn it, no one can take it away from you. Right. Um, and starting with the real estate one, that the reason why I say somewhat, it was my dad at that time had moved to Texas and he started getting into real estate syndicate. Back then they'd call it real estate syndications, which he, he would create these limited partnerships with investors and they were doing real estate deals in Texas. And I was intrigued listening to him about that business. The syndication um, means a whole bunch of people coming together. Coming together, where okay. you would get 30 to 40 limited partners and then you'd have a general partner and that would okay. be the finance. That was the way you get the finance and you go forward and do a real estate deal. Okay, great. And so that's, that's what he was doing. And so I found it intriguing. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to learn more about real estate. And the more I investigated it, you know, you can take a few classes and you can be your sales license, but then you have to hang that with a broker, you have to find a broker. Mm. And so, but if you study longer and take more classes, and since I already had my undergrad degree, some of my classes from undergrad degree at UC San Diego uh, qualified for those classes. Mm -hmm because you have to take eight classes, and I think today you still have to, and then take this pretty pretty difficult test for that one, and that and I was successful in doing that. That's how I got my broker's license. The good thing about that, I reckon, uh, Clayton, my son, and Colby, I'm trying to get both of them, and my daughter Carly, to do this now, because having a your broker's license in particular, when I think about how much money I've saved myself, or I've helped my friends over the years, doing real estate deals because I have the capacity to work the deal for myself or for them and represent myself. It's, it's been incredibly valuable financially. Right. So that one was, I recommend to any young person go do it. Um, the series seven stockbroker's license was a little bit more of the, the intrigue and, you know, I'm, I was just getting older and trying to think, you know, I didn't know much about the stock market, how it works. So that was really more about wanting to edu educate myself and better understand how it works if I was going to invest in the right. stock market. Interesting enough, uh, it was 1987 stock market crash because I graduated in 1985 undergrad. I finished that and I went to a couple week like internship with, I don't remember the company, but a stock brokerage company. And I was there for Black Monday, <laughs> yeah, which was in uh, 1987. I'm trying to remember the month, but yeah. Um, and that kind of was like watching people, you know, not have such a great day. Yeah, looking at, looking at the looks yeah. on their faces. Yeah, so I kind of, uh, I didn't pursue that one at that time, um, but it still was valuable to learn, right? And then the MBA, uh, doing that was just great to continue to advance myself um, and I had the time with teaching high school. I was able to do that um, in the mornings and do the classes in the evenings, great papers before I went to bed and do it all over again. <laughs> so, yeah. No, that's great. So um, we had talked just a little bit before too and one of the coolest jobs I've ever heard of is that uh, you were a bartender at the Playboy Mansion. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Actually, some of the guys we were sitting around talking with like, why did you ever quit that job? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fun. But just yeah. tell, tell the story quick if people are gonna to wanna to hear how you got the job in the first place. That, that's yeah. the entertaining part. I think at the time I was, I think I was going to UC Irvine at the time in, in the graduate program. And a friend of mine, Billy, uh, one of my best friends was up at UCLA and he had a job working for, 
I think the guy's name was Colin Cowie, and he was a promoter and did the. He was starting to really get into the Hollywood scene and providing for the big parties. And he landed the wedding when Hugh Hefner married Kimberly. And so Colin Cowie comes to Billy, who's his main employee, and says, we need more bartenders and servers. And Billy says, well, I have plenty of them. <laughs> and plenty of them was basically his group of buddies that he went to high school with. Right. Which I was one of like 10 guys that got to go do this gig, which we were shocked that we actually got paid to do it. Um, and so, yeah, we literally bartended slash served the, uh, the wedding reception. And then we did such a good job. We got invited to come back and do the pajama parties. So you're right. Um, no, but at some point we got fired. Uh, they, I think they, I think they realized that we probably weren't as professional as what they needed. Cause we were all 22, 23 years old. You're like, this is awesome. Yeah. So it was a fun experience. And I think what I was sharing with the guys is like, you know, over the, as, as I, progressed in my career and I, and I saw myself as being relatively successful, I would laugh at my dad when he would see his friends and his friends would ask, what does your son do? He would use it before he talked about me running the company. He'd say, well, he worked at the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> and I think that was probably, and my dad was most impressed with that job, right? Oh yeah. That's always, <laughs> that's always a good feather in the cap. So you worked at Deloitte. Uh, what, what did you do at Deloitte Touche? So uh, as I finished my MBA program, um, again, kind of continuing education for a lot of people as you go in, back then it was called the big eight accounting, public accounting firms. Today, I think it's the big four or five. Yeah, big four. But I started with Touche Roche, who ultimately merged with Deloitte Haskins and Sells that they became Deloitte Touche. Okay. Today, they might have only called themselves Touche Roche, I don't know. But um, so yeah, I, I, I went into public accounting, kind of a grind. You know, I had, I had my accounting focus that I, I had and uh, I thought it would be a good step towards, ultimately I saw myself as being a CFO of a company. Mm -hmm. And so um, I went and did that and I specialized pretty early on because they found out I had my real estate broker's license and I was interested in that. Mm -hmm. And so in the particular company Deloitte, they had specialty groups. And so I became really early on into the real estate specialist. And so not only was I doing um, uh, audit, but I started doing real estate consulting. So I was starting to do financial analysis for companies um, and uh, did it for eight years, which a lot of people, you know, you go for two, three or four years in public accounting, you get your certified public accounting CPA license. So I have that license as well. Right. Um, so I got my CPA license and continued and I was all the way to being a senior manager and I was two years from being a partner and uh, as a senior manager and I had a lot of autonomy and some great partners I worked for, I kind of saw what the partner life was as being in a public accounting. And it, for me, I realized even though I could be really successful and have a great career, the idea of just reporting on historical financial statements, it's kind of like, where was the big excitement? It just wasn't, for me, it wasn't exciting enough. Right. And um, so I started, that was a point in time I started to say, maybe I should see if I want to take a redirection in my career. And this idea of being a controller slash CFO for maybe a real estate company might be something interesting. And then that's when I uh, was able to go get the job at at Shea Homes. So I went from that to, to Shea Homes and I started as their controller for their Southern California division. That was my next question. So 
<clears throat> how did you find, did you interview at Shade? Did you know somebody at Shade? How, how no, it's actually um, a headhunter of all things. So this gal, uh, Chris Quinn, I still remember her. I still see her once in a while at, at uh, industry functions. And uh, she, six months prior, she cold called me for a different interview with a different home building company. And while the interview all went great, it just, it didn't, it wasn't just a perfect fit. And so I didn't move forward with it, but it, it kind of taught me what I really wanted in a company. Right. And so I said to Chris, this is what I'm looking for. And I also said to her, I'm now realizing that not only do I want to be the controller CFO, I really want to be a president. I want to run, I want to run a real estate company. And she waited six months before she called me back. And when she called me, I remember saying, you don't even have to tell me anything. The fact that you waited six months to call me means that you listened to me. And I'll go to whatever interview you got lined up for me because I believe that you you didn't. If you would have called me three, four days later or a couple of weeks later, I would ask more questions. So right. I just went to the interview with Shay um, and, uh, and I flat out told the guy at the time who was the division president, Les Thomas, um, I told him that I really wanted to learn the business. And I said, if I can get the job done of running the accounting and finance for the division, if I can get it done in 80% of the time, that 20% of time that I have left over, will you teach me the business? Because I don't know the business and I mm -hmm. want to know the business. And Les said yes to that, which was awesome. I was, he knew right out of the gate, I understood the finance and accounting and that was his weakness. He was really more of an operations guy and a marketing guy and he was good at running the company. So I really, we became kind of a good team together where I was really helpful to him and, and understanding what was going on financially. And he was just as great, phenomenal in terms of really doing what he said, which was letting me understand architecture, community development, going through and understanding operations, walking the field with him. And, and so that was really the best decision I ever made was, uh, it was great from a, doing the job, but it was more important for me was the growth that I was able to have because he was committed to doing that for me. And it was great for him. It was great for him because we made a great partnership exactly. and, and, and his needs relative to, if you're running a company, if you don't really understand finance and accounting, you better have someone you trust that does because there are such critical decisions that are made and you know, the books and records have to be kept, you know, so. But that's for any company. For any company. You know, it's like I've got numbers, that, you know, I own an IT staffing company and uh, you know, the first couple of years, you know, <laughs> flying by the seat of my pants, right. you know, it's just like I had the, my first, um, back office manager who came in, I just pretty much handed him a stack of papers and said, here you go. And he looked at it and said, Oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, now, you know, I, I've got a CPA and a numbers person that just do nothing but take care of that and make sure right. we're all good. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's so important. One of the things I was going to talk about going back to what you said before about your headhunter. Mm -hmm. Um, so important because I started out as a headhunter mm. and with an IT staffing company, we're pretty much, it, we're affiliated with a headhunter type company. Um, when people are looking for jobs, when people are talking to recruiters and headhunters, just like what you did, it's exactly what people have to do. Tell people what you want. Otherwise you're wasting your time and you're wasting their time. It's just like, you got to come out and tell them. And then those people will listen to you. 
I will listen to people when they're <clears throat> straightforward and they tell me exactly, listen, John, this is what I'm looking for. And then you'll have somebody come back to you. They go, oh, wait a second. Lane told me he was looking for a presidency of this kind of company, wants to run. Uh, it's, it's exactly what people need to do. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Said before, we own a Shea Home. We love it. Great company. Um, tell me about Shea Homes. I saw that um, you guys are involved in building the Hoover Dam and the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm -hmm. Not Shea Homes. <laughs> That'd be a weird home. Yeah. Um, tell me about Shea's involvement in building the Golden Gate Bridge and just a little bit of history about Shea. Yeah, so uh, Shea Homes is one of a multitude of companies under the umbrella. The parent company is a JF Shea company. And so you have Shea Homes, you have Shea Properties, Shea, Shea Heavy Construction, and there's also what's called Shea Ventures, uh, which is like venture capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that came from them being successful, the Shea family, and at, at some point, almost not having enough opportunities to invest their monies in, back into real estate or heavy construction. And so they were doing startup companies through venture capital. Uh, and then there's even some other smaller companies, Reed Pumping, and there's some other smaller companies under the JF Shea umbrella, but those are the main four. Um, so we do for sale, Shea Homes does for sale, uh, um, homes, single family and multifamily, which would be townhomes and condos. And then Shea Properties does apartments, uh, and this is construction. And in, in, in properties case, it's not only do they construct, but they hold for their own account. They don't typically sell, they sell sometimes, but most of the time they're building for holding as asset management and ownership. Okay. And so they do apartments, uh, commercial buildings, offices, uh, industrial parks, industrial buildings, and um, retail centers. Uh, looked at hotels, but never ventured into that. Um, but the history of the company is in heavy construction. And so going back to, I think it's all the way back to 1881. Hmm. In fact, in California, I think our con general contractor's license is license eight. So I think we were the eighth general contractor in the state of California. And so, Shea Heavy Construction was a plumbing and ultimately dams and tunnel uh, type of company. And as it grew in prestige, it started doing some of the biggest and most iconic infrastructure projects in the United States. As you mentioned, I think we were the master developer or we are a co-partner in doing the Hoover Dam. We were the lead contractor in the Golden Gate Bridge doing the pier foundations. So what that means is that was literally bringing the a reverse pool of the San Francisco Bay going down to bedrock and drilling down and putting in the foundation system that holds up the supports for the Golden Gate Bridge. Not an easy task in 1934. <laughs> Not an easy task now. Right. We, what, we whatever the, the year that was. Ed Googled it earlier and the water underneath the Golden Gate Bridge is 300 right. feet deep. Yeah. And if you've ever swam out there, you know, why do they have, what's the prison that's out there? Alcatraz. The one time that I was swimming out there is right. when I was escaping Alcatraz. There you go, right? You know? So, I mean, the reason they do it is because it was so treacherous that they felt comfortable that no one could swim and survive it because of the currents and the craziness of the bay and the winds that come up. And so, 
I'm, I still, it's still amazing to me that 90 years ago, if not more, you know, we were able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so the Shays, I, I joke with building homes for people. I say, if there's one thing we can do, we know how to build a foundation. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah. My next thing I want to talk about is uh, something that's on everybody's mind right now, which is COVID. So in the construction business, in the home business, there's probably a bunch of different ways that it affects it, but I wanted to ask you, how has COVID affected your business as far as the houses you're building for people? Yeah, there's how it affected our operation and running our business, you know, all the way down to managing our trades and the activities that go into building a home and the number of people that are part of those activities, you know, from uh, the plumbers to the foundation guys, to the framers, to the carpenters, to electricians, to the roofers, to the painters. I mean, what goes into building the home, you know, Shea Homes, I have approximately 100 people that work for Shea Homes, my division. But indirectly, I probably have at any time, I don't know, three to 5,000 people that really work for us mm-hmm. through contracting because we contract all those disciplines to come out. So the coordination of not only the 100 or so people, i.e. my project managers, that would be like your, traditionally they were called superintendents or assistant superintendents. We call them field managers and assistant field managers today. That's the titles that they have. Mm-hmm. And our customer service man, uh, uh, assistants, uh, trying to deal with still interfacing, managing all these people now in the new world of COVID and the social distancing and the protocols, it was really difficult. And as we're doing it, the governor of the state of California and the different counties, i.e. the five or six counties of the Bay Area, were changing the rules almost every week. And I understand why. I mean, it was it was a dynamic process, right, that was happening, right, with 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 COVID coming through. We were learning and there was hot spots and all that, you know, so and to the point that we got shut down for two weeks. So we also learned what it was like to have our business get shut down. And that was scary. Maybe one of the better things that could have happened, not that we were being reckless at all, I wouldn't say we were, but all of those trades when all of a sudden one day you're out of work. When we did come back to work just luckily a couple of weeks later and then started the jobs back up, I think by knowing the threat of being shut down potentially again, everyone really listened a lot better. Whether that was about wearing masks or when the taco truck showed up at lunch, you know, let's make sure that every six feet is where you're standing as compared to, you know, crunched up around the window, trying right. to get your, your afternoon burrito. Um, you know, all that stuff mattered. Right. right? And, and how guys worked, uh, and in confined spaces, and a lot of times they do. And a lot of times the job, a lot of the activities is not a one person activity. It's a multi-person activity. Um, so, that was interesting and we've done really a great job uh but we learned we were learning as it was it was it was happening right we were reinventing our businesses felt like on a daily basis mm-hmm. and um but we're much better at it today right because we're now what seven months eight months into this something like that. something like that right on the consumer side it's been uh really dramatic to see um 
the business in the business of selling homes was actually really good pre-COVID. We were we were coming into a good year in, in Northern California. The market was good. Um, we were selling more homes than we had anticipated in the months of January, February, and then even coming into March. And March 17th or 18th hit, and it just shut off. I mean, it shut off. We didn't sell another house in March. We sold a net four homes in April. What I mean by net is in our business, you have new escrows, and then you have sometimes have cancellations, which is someone that decided to walk away from their contract, mm. which is a cancellation. We had almost as many cancellations as if we were having new people signing up to buy a home from us. Because everybody's freaking out. Because everybody's freaking out. Right. And to be honest with you, we're, we were revising our forecast every week ourselves. We didn't know where, where this was going to go with our business. Yeah, so are we. It was like, yeah. what's going to happen? Yeah. And so, you know, April was an interesting month. And then May was when you started. Things weren't great around the country, as we all know. But there was more stability was coming forward. And I think we sold 16 net homes in May. Come June, dramatically different. All of a sudden it's buyers looking at lifestyle choices, consumer preferences, and what was happening for the first time where employment was changing in terms of go ahead and work from home. Because it went from like, otherwise it's gonna be our businesses shut down. Because legally we weren't even allowed to have people, basically business as usual in the office environment. I think what they call it minimum basic operations was mm -hmm. the only people that could be in the office, which was like your office management, you know, d mail delivery, you know, just a few functions that kind of needed to happen. So the majority of our people were working from home and a lot of companies, a lot of the tech companies pretty early into this started saying to people, we won't see you until 2021 or we might not ever see you in the physical office again. And so we've all started to get accustomed with Zoom and Microsoft Teams and what it's like to work from home. Surprisingly, we found that we were very productive um, and became comfortable. I, I can believe how quickly we'd be comfortable. We became comfortable having, whether it was an architectural meeting, where now I've got 10 people, you know, in the gallery of a Zoom and then one person that would be like the architect could take control of the screen and put the architectural floor plans up and we're all working live and he's got a CAD system and he's changing room configuration and stuff on the fly, on the screen. We're all engaging. I'm like, wait, we're just as productive as when we do this in the boardroom, right. all physically sitting there. So, um, and that's just our business, but a lot of businesses were finding this. Finding it so much that the buyer preferences of in particular, younger people, younger people, let's say 25 to 35, maybe even to 25 to 40 year olds. Some people like to call them millennials um, that were in San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland by necessity uh, because their job was there. And with the traffic congestion of the Bay Area, you know, that's kind of where they needed to be. But they're paying four to five thousand dollars a month for rent. Mm -hmm. But they also liked it because there was bars and there was restaurants. And that's where the action. There was cultural. There was there was action. Yeah. Well, the action got turned off, and it got turned off enough. And then all of a sudden, this I don't like density, right? And um, all the rules that go with density. This isn't fun anymore. It's time. 
to get the heck out of the cities and go to suburban neighborhoods. So the suburban neighborhoods that we have, which would be cities like uh, Mountain House, Tracy, out in Lathrop, Brentwood, Oakley, you know, Antioch, Fairfield, and I'm not saying we're building in all those, but those, those places, more suburban neighborhoods, everyone is flooding to those neighborhoods and they still are today. Mm -hmm. So our housing demand has skyrocketed. In fact, starting in June and especially in July till now, we, have, we are having almost breaking records for the type of uh, sales that we're having in the suburban neighborhoods. And um, we'll see, are we stealing demand? Are we taking what would have naturally been two, three and four years of demand? Because as those young people started getting to that stage in their life, some point they were gonna settle down and they were gonna move to suburbia. And now this has accelerated that decision all into like a condensed time frame. They all decide, let's just make that decision now. Right. If it's that, okay, then are we just taking all that and then all of a sudden it's gonna shut off? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but at the moment, there's still a lot of energy right now. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a shift of where they are comfortable, where is the community that they wanna live? And where they wanna live is in a single family detached home. And so we've modified the product as well. And I can tell you about that too, if you'd like. Well, my question before we get into that is, so what's gonna to happen to the cities? That's an interesting thing. Yeah. You know, you've got I, all this commercial real estate sitting yeah. there in these big cities. It's scary. It's scary. I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting. So you got a combination of things. You got our will, when the leases expire, right? Will these companies not renew their leases for their 100,000 square feet of office space, right? Or will, and or if they do, will they condense it down to 25,000 from 100 because they only need some core services and or office pods and people because they come in once a week instead of five five days a week. I don't know. And then what's going to happen to the apartments and and the for sale market that are in the cities of housing? That's going to get interesting too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you look at a city like San Francisco pre before COVID. It was already starting to struggle. I mean, the real estate prices continue to go up, but just the experience, at least for me, living here for 20 years, San Francisco 15 years ago compared to San Francisco today, for me is very different. I don't like it like I did before. I would, I would before, couldn't wait to take my wife, go stay in a hotel, go to a nice restaurant, go shopping, you know, go down along the wharf. And today it's very different. It's really lost. It feels dirty. There's a lot of drugs, unfortunately. There's a lot of homelessness. There's a lot of social struggles, right? Okay, but now I, mean, I have a discretionary decision about, because it is discretionary, where I want to go do entertainment, where right. I want to go. I'm now saying that's just not for me. You know, well, what if everyone feels that way about that particular city and some of these other cities? So it's going to be interesting to see uh, whether this migration, you know, happens or not. And then it's like, you know, because there, there was such a strong movement in our business, the, the, the pressure by communities was for everybody to move into density because more of the environmentalist movement was keep the hillsides pristine, push everybody, mass transit, get the automobile off the road, put everybody in mass transit, put them in hubs, and I want the offices to be dense and I want the housing to be dense and then leave 
the grounds where you can more pristine, the rolling hills. And, and still today, it's one of the reasons why Northern California is so beautiful because uh, it still has a lot of its hillsides. And, and, uh, but there, there's, that whole thing's kind of reversed right now. People don't want to go on BART. Right? I mean, I haven't been on BART yet. I haven't been on BART for seven months. Oh, I, I, and I don't really plan on going back on BART anytime soon. Well, BART ridership's like, like five or 10% of what it was, which means, you know, everybody else feels the same way. Feels the same way. Yeah, I don't, uh, I disliked going on BART. I lived in Danville for a while when I first moved to California and uh, I'd go to Walnut Creek, jump on, go into the city for a job that I was working for six months. And I've never been sick so many times in my life. You know, it was, it was ridiculous, but it's just, uh, it's going to be an interesting next few years to see what happens to that kind of, uh, to San Francisco, to Chicago, some these large, large um, cities where we all were told we had to go. Yeah. It was about seven months ago, it was eight months ago, something like that. It was right before COVID, I did a blog that was talking about working from home. It said by 20, the research I did said by 2024, over 50% of the people were gonna be working from home. Boom, two months later, COVID hits, what, 75% of the people are working from home now, yeah. something like that. Right. And I don't see it going back. You know, yeah. we were talking earlier, jump on, the freeway to go to Pleasanton the other day at nine o'clock in the morning, I was there in 35 or 40 minutes mm. where if I would have jumped on at eight 30, nine o'clock in the morning, an hour, and back, hour and a half easy. Right. You know, so there's a lot of great things that came out of this really disastrous, right. you know, COVID uh, situation that we're in. So, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and there's a lot of great things happening. So, Talk about some of the changes you're doing to, uh, you're talking about uh, some of the houses that you're gonna be um, designing. Yeah. Some of the things you're, uh, the new designs you're going through. Well, what I say- Is that what you're gonna talk about? Yeah. Uh, the home itself, I feel like has never been so important as it is today. It is now, you know, before it was shelter and family, obviously, and then community. And today it's your office, it's your kid's school desk. It's hmm. your it's your place for entertainment. What are we all doing? We're all cooking, right? You're taking, you're going, you're getting on cooking shows and you're cooking because you're not going out to the restaurants. You still want to have some level of entertainment with friends, but even that is somewhat controlled. And I'll talk a little bit about what I'm doing on design about that. Uh, and then it's your safe haven, right? It's kind of that safety place. It's your bubble, right? We would always before almost build community first and then house second a bit where it's like, make sure that they have that community experience. Some of those things we were talking about master plan communities before, right? About the beautiful parks and the, the rec centers and all that. And it, that's still important, especially outdoor stuff. Um, but the home is so important now, more so than I can ever remember. And so we have looked at our designs on both homes we are already in production on uh, not stopping a physical home being built, but let's say I was, I was in, I'm at the 25th home of what will be a hundred homes. So I still have time to redesign the other 75 homes, let's say, or when I was designing new communities that are going through the entitlement process that might be coming forward in the next six to 12 months, I'm taking all of those plans and I'm looking for opportunities to modify. And here's some examples, laundry rooms. Now laundry rooms are 
critically important, okay? And everyone loves to have a nice laundry room. And, uh, you know, your entry closet, coat closet, kind of important as well. But if I told you, if you've had the experience lately where you don't have a place quiet without the dog barking or the kids running around where you can take your important business calls now that you're working from home. And I tell you, I can take your seven by seven foot laundry room and I can convert that into what I call now an office pod. It's because not even a real office. I mean, pre COVID, I would never build an, off, an office that was less than 10 by 12. Right. People now are saying, just give me a, a pod. Give me any place that I can go that's quiet. I can shut the door, but give me some fresh air, hopefully. But a place I can do a Zoom call and I got good Wi-Fi. That all of a sudden it becomes so important to all of us, right? Whether it's us working or the kids taking a midterm or whatever it might be. So when I offer that to somebody and I say, but now I'm going to take away your coat closet. I'm going to give you a stackable washer and driver. I'm going to put that in your coat closet, but I'm going to give you an office pod in your house. People are like, I'm taking that office pot all day long. Right. So uh, another, that same space, I can also flex to a, what I call a Peloton room. And I use Peloton because it's kind of the rage right now. Right. Everyone's doing Pelotons or it's a stationary bike or it's your home workout, right? Because the gym has been closed. Well, is a gym forever going to be closed? Probably not. But some of us, even when it opens back up, just the idea of sweat and wiping down machines and going into a gym kind of feels a little risky, right? Now, if all of a sudden I go, well, I, I got you a seven by seven or seven by whatever room and you can put a Peloton in there and some yoga mats and some kettlebells and you put a mirror in there and now you got your little workout space. All of a sudden they go, hey, no, I like that. So we're looking for opportunities like that. We're looking at spaces where kids can study as well. So you might still have the office pod, but you can't forget that you might have an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old at the same time. They're on Zoom. So what are you going to do about their room or outside their room? Can I have a common little study cove space that the kids can get connected? The connected home has never been so important. When I right. mean making sure the Wi-Fi is at top notch, right? Cat six, wi you know, you got what you know, what are you doing? What am I doing with the mesh? And I'm not a techie guy, so I gotta be careful to get myself in trouble. Huh. I but, just put mesh in my house. Right. Getting you know? the mesh, you know, and so making sure that it works. Okay. And in the new homes compared to I live in a 20-year-old home and I'm I'm struggling right now with my kids because the Wi-Fi just is, the bandwidth is only so good. But in the new communities, let me tell you, we got great bandwidth and we got great options for, and a lot of it's standard in the home that I'm building. Another thing I'm really, we already really were focused on was outdoor spaces in the homes, which would be like, some people call them California rooms or outdoor rooms. We are now looking at expanding those, or if we didn't have them available in a design, we're designing them in. And, and what I say about that is, I want to have my friends over and it's a little bit like, well, yeah, why don't you come through the side, side gate? And so, and I'll meet you out there and we're going to have a glass of wine and we're going to watch a ball game in that outdoor space. And I think people are more comfortable in the COVID world of there's fresh air coming there. And so don't I mean, come yeah, inside, don't my come house. inside my house <laughs> and bring your germs inside right, right, my house. Right. Yeah. And so it's, we've done it. No, we've all done. I had friends over last week and literally that's what happened. They want, they wasn't even, mm -hmm. they wanted to, they said, I hope you don't mind, but we want to come in the side. Right. And we want to have, we're going to barbecue 
And so we basically did, and I have an outdoor TV, and we did, we watched the ball game, and we did everything outside. And so a lot of focus on that too now in our design. And those are, you know, there's a few other things we're working on too, but, um, but we jumped all over that. And I think it's going, to, we haven't even got them to the market. I'm already having good sales right now. And we haven't even brought that to the market yet. That's all starting to come to market now in the next three to four months. Well, it's going to be huge. Um, those are all great ideas. Um, that California room, that's yeah. a favorite part of the house. Right. You know, it's just, that's where we spend 95% of our time. Yeah. You know, what? put a TV out there. You get to be outdoors, watching TV, hanging out. I just absolutely love it. <clears throat> so you already talked about it a little bit before, but uh, what really gets you excited about what you do today? Well, I still, back when I was, uh, before I was division president for Northern California, I, and when I was the controller slash CFO for the Southern California division, I had a stop off at corporate or Shea corporate and I became merger, part of their mergers and acquisitions team. And so we did some large company, not just land transactions, but company transactions where we bought, in one case, we bought Mission Viejo Company from Philip Morris. In another case, we bought a UDC Homes. Um, that was in 1997 and 1998. I was just a young kid. And, uh, and those were big companies, right? Each deal was a half, half billion, not million. So right. five, $500 million deals. In fact, the Mission Viejo transaction in 1997, I think was the largest real estate transaction that year in the United States. Interesting enough, I grew up in Mission Viejo. So I ended up buying, I ended up, when we bought Mission Viejo Company, we bought the remaining assets of the cities of Mission Viejo, Aliso Viejo, which is an adjacent city, and then the Highland, Highlands Ranch Master Plan community in Colorado. And um, so that was a big deal for me to be part of. I still love the art of the deal. And luckily in my position, you know, buying land right is, you, you live or die in my business about your land deals. Mm -hmm. And so even though I have a team of unbelievable experts in, in land acquisition and finding land opportunities, I'm there all the time with them hand in hand working on those deals. And, a lot and is the land opportunity about location? I mean, is the old deal location, location, yeah, location? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, in the market of Northern California, I gotta tell you, you gotta be pretty opportunistic. Uh, if, if you say, I am gonna be restricting myself to this is what I want, good luck. Yeah. Because it's so hard to find land opportunities in Northern California that you have to be flexible and what I call, you know, opportunistic. Luckily we are, we do, we do, I'm doing a fourplex, or not a fourplex, I'm doing a 12plex four-story product in Fremont right now with commercial elevators and you know high dent more or less mid to high density and I'm doing luxury homes in Brentwood mm -hmm. and I'm doing a lot in, of, of different things in between. Um, so on all of the type of products we focus on, we like to bring good quality to them and innovative design we like to pride ourselves on that, but we'll do a big diversity of product type and product location. And you kind of have to be in this, uh, in this market. Um, otherwise you're just going to be the guy overpaying for land because you're going to just bid it to a point that you know, you get it. Uh, but okay. I hope your returns are okay. Right. You know, so we like to try to be more balanced, you know, okay. And flexible. So, um, 
kind of going through the, this whole podcast series is called True Ambition. So something that changed my life a, a while back was a quote that I read. Um, uh, my, my back history is that I've gone through um, alcohol recovery. Mm -hmm. So one of the quotes that I read that kind of changed my life is true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Mm -hmm. Once I read that, it kind of changed my view and my perspective of things because I've always been ambitious. But I think that what I was doing was being ambitious for the wrong reasons, mm -hmm. for you know my own um, pride, uh, for getting ahead, making money, um, getting the girl, whatever it was. So some of these questions I'm going to ask here as we end are really to help other people to learn about how you got where you got, which they've already done a little bit. But now what I want to do is really focus on what your true ambition is and how we can help other people. Mm. So it always takes other people in life to, and you've talked about a couple of them, other people to kind of mentor us and teach us lessons, either good or bad, and we can take them one way or the other. What was the most notable event that led you to where you are today in your whole life? I mean, what was the thing that kind of put you on the trajectory to, this is where I'm going? Person or event? Event? Event. Okay. We'll get to a person. Yeah, I think on the event, it, I would probably have to say that Mission Viejo transaction I was just talking about. I was fortunate enough because I can remember, and the reason why it truly was an event is John Shea, who's now 93 or 94 years old and still active in the company. And he's just a saint of a person. He's a, so great. Him and at the time, the CEO of the company, Roy Humphreys, and this is in 1997. Um, and they brought me in and I'm 35 four years old, I think, at the time. And there was 52 companies that were looking at buying the Mission Viejo company. That's how competitive it was. And this wow. deal was going to be massive. And they asked whether I would more or less take a step away from the Southern California division. They had comfort because I did this Chevron, Chevron portfolio deal in Huntington Beach a year prior. And Roy got involved in the deal and kind of got to see my negotiating skills and my finance and math coming into that. Mm -hmm. So John and them, him looked and said, will you basically lead this effort for the company? And I can remember that I, mentally I wanted to say, that is so too big for me, right? <laughs> and so I, and of course, physically though, I. I'm shaking my head like, and I'm giving them the absolutely, I'm your guy. Yeah. But inside, I am like, oh my God, I am so over my skis. Right. right. And, and I've told young people, don't ever sell yourself short. Right. People discount their abilities and they don't push themselves enough. And that was a crossroads for me because it could have been so easy for me to, to discount it and tell them I'm not your guy. And said, I took a risk. Uh, they took a big risk and ended up being incredibly successful. And I, I grew tremendously from the opportunity. Did I have to grind and learn a lot? Yeah. But it ended up being 
what set me on the path. This turned out to be such a phenomenal deal. And I had such exposure to the three Shea owners because there's actually John Shea, Edmund Shea, and Peter Shea. To the point that when we went back to Philip Morris in New York, it was just me with the three of them on the airplane going back to finalize the deal for the next 10 days in the attorney's offices back in New York. Um, moving me up to Northern California to run the company up here was basically almost like my, pre that's like, all right, you prove that you can do this. Because at the time, another guy was retiring up here. And it all happened because of that. Yeah. I don't think I would have had the unbelievable 20 years I've had running the company in Northern California had I said no to that opportunity. Just because he said yes. You know, I was just going to compare it to what you were talking about before. I could have went out and went surfing, but I stayed in class instead. Yeah. You know, it's almost the same thing. Right. I could have said no right. to that and taken the easy way out. It's very easy to say no. Right. You know, so thank God you did it, you know, and thank God you're here to talk about it for other people to learn about it. Yeah. So now the next thing we're talking about is who are the person or persons that you learn the most from in your life? Well, there's been a lot of great people um, throughout. I've had a, a great career and there's a lot of people that have like John Shea in particular, I have to mention you earlier. Um, and Roy Humphreys, and now Bert Selva is my, my boss today. He's the CEO of the company uh, for Shea Helms. But I would have to say my father, uh, who passed away a couple years ago. My father was a very successful businessman. He was in, we were talking earlier about COBOL uh, uh, computer language. My dad was essentially a headhunter back in the day. He had his company called Sigmatics, and at one point in time, he had 150 contracted computer programmers working around the world. He had multiple offices around the United States. He actually brought the company public and we were more or less the fairly wealthy family on the block, right? Or in the community. And I was really probably a pretty spoiled kid. Um, luckily, I don't think of myself as I was, I don't think I was a spoiled brat, but I had the luxuries of life growing up. And uh, my dad, luckily he enjoyed spending time with me when he came home from work. And for some reason, I enjoyed listening and learning about his business. And so instead of him just reading the paper and shoving me to the side and saying, you know, I'm tired, I just want to relax, he would engage with me. And, and any given night for a half hour, 45 minutes, and we also like to play golf together. So we had a lot of time on the golf course in the evenings. We go play, we lived on a golf course, so we go play three or four holes before dinner. So I had a lot of time with dad. Well, instead of just you know, talking about little kid stuff, we talked about business. And so he really inspired me to, and I got intrigued by business. He was, he was uh, running a company. I thought that was just something that I would love to do someday. And so it, it just always had that desire to be successful and someday run a company like he did. Unfortunately for him, struggles as, as I was in my college years, uh, he ended up losing, bad series of events and he lost his business and went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And then the beautiful home that I went grew up in was foreclosed on and the home was taken away from the family. So I saw everything from bankruptcy to losing our home and then watching my dad have to rebuild. Luckily, he was a smart person and he had his ability to rebuild, but it wasn't like immediate. It took, it took time. And a lot of hardship. And a lot of hardship. And for me, why it was probably the worst and best thing that could happen. 
worst thing is to have to go through that experience and have to see your family have to go through that, and especially my father. The best was the learning that comes from watching and being aware that you can always lose everything if you aren't careful. Mm-hmm. And be careful about how you take risk in life and financial management and trusting of people and all that kind of stuff, right? I learned those hard lessons young watching him. And I think it really helped me as I went through my career. And what was his name? Col- Colby. Colby? Yeah. And you got a Colby. And I have a Colby. So his formal name is Colburn, but he always went by Colby. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I grew up It's Larry Lloyd, Lee, Lynn, and Lane. Five of us, all L's. Yeah. Now you I, always want, I always wanted to have, if I had a son, I wanted to be named after my dad. I always told my sisters, I get to reserve Colby. For my son. <laughs> and they respected that decision, which is nice of them. And so once we had Colby, I said to my wife, Shelly, she, I'm sure she hated me for I'm like, oh, no, no, they all have to be C's. Why? why? I go, well, we were all L's. That's kind of what we, we did, right? <laughs> And she's like, okay, well, then our daughter we named Celeste. I'm like, no, that's a soft C. It needs to be a hard C, a cut. <laughs> she's like, what? You know, so that's why it was Carly or and now Chloe. And so anyhow, so her license plate on my wife's back of her car is C-C-C-C-R-Z-Y. Crazy. As in, <laughs> especially when the kids are younger. They're older now, so they don't, they don't drive her. She's, had that license she's not plate. going crazy right now. No, she's had that license plate for a while. But when they were all young, right, she'd say. She was going crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, um, so he had a bunch of uh, programmers all over the world, you said? Pretty much. Yeah. Mostly the United States, but I know he was doing things internationally too, but yeah. That's awesome. So what year was that? He had to be one of the first headhunters. I mean. Oh yeah. This is the, uh, this is 1965 probably to 1975. I'm going to guess in that time frame. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I started in uh, 1996, right before Y2K, and COBOL and RPG AS400 was still going strong. Yeah. You know, so um, are you a regimented person? I mean, do you do everything the same every day? Mm, I try to be regimented on like working out, you know, try to have a program, a discipline of working out. I'm super, but I don't know that I'm regimented because uh, I'm a multitasker, mm-hmm. probably have a little ADD in me constantly have to do multiple things. And so uh, I'm busy. My kids think I'm, you know, I'm actually probably on the hyper side, right? It's like I'm constantly going and they think it's kind of funny sometimes. So like, man, your age, when are you going to slow down? <laughs> so, uh, so no, I don't know that I'm overly regimented now. So you talk about like working out and stuff. What are some of your daily rituals? Well, it's changed. You know, I used to be more of a you know, weights kind of guy and not enough cardio. And I knew that was probably a problem. And then with COVID, I, I bought a Peloton. And so I do a Peloton now and I try to do swimming laps. I love, love swimming still. And so I'm trying to do more cardio. And so it's kind of, it's kind of shifted. It's going to be interesting to see if I go back to more of a free weights and weights program. If the, if, if I get comfortable going back to the gym or not, we'll see, you know, well, we got, uh, we, we've built, we get the Peloton, we get the Peloton tread <laughs> and, uh, you know, built out one room where it's just a gym. I don't ever want to go back to a gym. Yeah. You know, it's like, there's nothing better than getting up in the morning, brushing my teeth. Five minutes later, I'm on my bike, Yeah. you know, and it's just like, um, I, I enjoyed the camaraderie of a gym, but uh, right. just going into doing that, I just uh, don't enjoy it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. I try to get it done in the morning, you know, six in the morning and, you know, 
for me too, if I can get something like that done that I feel like is helping me from a health standpoint, that I think I do better at work. It's oh, like, me too. It's like having that victory of accomplishment early in the morning as compared to just sleeping in and feeling lazy and kind of feeling like the day didn't get going. Yeah. So no, I need to get up and I need to hit it. Yeah. Otherwise, because I, I was, if I always do that, if I say, I'm going to work out this afternoon. <laughs> By the time I get home with Johnny, put him down and go, I'm not doing anything. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'll probably be in my neighbor's backyard smoking a cigar. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the last question that I ask is a question that I ask at the end of every one of these podcasts. So like I said before, the name of this podcast is True Ambition. Right. So what is your true ambition? Two ways. One in your work life and the other in your personal life. First is work life. Well, work life, it's interesting. I think your true ambition changes as you go through life. If I go back to being younger, my true ambition was all about financial success and material success, right? All the way down to like, you know, I want to get a Ferrari by the time I'm 25. Right. Well, at some point I had the financial means to buy a Ferrari and I've never owned a Ferrari. But it was for some reason when I was younger, that was kind of like this aspirational thing, right? And, and so when I was younger, there was, you know, work. It was always a means to more material things and financial success, which I felt came with bringing comfort, right? And, but there was a point in time in my career, thank God, is that once you realize how much money gets, keeps, takes care of just the, your basics, right? That you need. Mm -hmm. And then it was, I felt like there was an evolution of, of how I looked at my work. And instead of thinking of work for a paycheck, I thought of work differently, which is, it was just more of a mindset. I worked because I wanted to work. And even if they, almost to the point of, even if they didn't pay me, right? Would you still do this? And so I think, well, yeah, I probably would. Cause I and got this point of work became more enjoyable when I stopped worrying about making money. I still made the same amount of money, but mentally I stopped thinking about it that way. Right. And um, I started looking at it for all the reasons why I just let it be part of my life. And that's what it is for me now. I, I thrive, I, I love it. Even if I could retire today, yeah, I'll kind of look at that going, no, oh, that doesn't sound so good. Or before I can remember when I was younger thinking, oh, I'm gonna retire when I'm young, like success. Oh yeah. And now today when I think about, I'll be at the golf course all day long. Right. And also I'm like, no, not really. I need the challenge. It's the team. It's like, you know, and then the, the latest evolution of all of that, I would say is, is in the last few years, I now have three individuals that have worked closely with me that are now division presidents for other home building companies. And that is really cool. And a lot of the other reason I like to work is to see other people that work with me that I can hopefully do a good job of managing and leading and inspiring and see them grow and hoping that they can, that I had a part of helping them grow in their career. Um, and so that's kind of where I am at with work today. You know, other than the fact that I'm lucky that I, we build something that people love, which is their home. And we talk about the home as the American dream. And how lucky am I that I get to build people's, you know, what they see as the, their American, be 
influential in helping them to achieve that. Right. It's, it's, so it's really a great business from that standpoint that allows me to do that. On the personal side, you know, I just always love kids and family and having four kids, you know, for me, it's all about engagement with family and COVID actually has been good for that. I mean, I'll tell you, oh, me too. The, the family unity for me this summer, oh my gosh, you know, my college kids were back in the house and we bought a cabin in Tahoe and I got a boat and we're on the boat every morning and every evening and we're wake surfing and having fun together. And, you know, within careful protocol of COVID, you know, friends can come and be part of that. And all the young people I've had on the boat helping teach them how to wake surf and stuff. It's been really a great, unbelievable summer for me. Um, but yeah, what just being a good, a good father and husband, I mean, that's kind of the ultimate uh, on the personal side. And, you know, I lost both my parents in the last two to three years. And so, you know, prior to that too, I was always, you know, wanting to be a good son. Yeah. So. Well, awesome. This has been a great podcast. I appreciate you, Lane, for coming in here. Yeah. Everybody, it's Lane Marceau uh, from Shea Homes, uh, president of Shea Homes, Northern California. A uh, good friend of mine, and I appreciate you coming in today. Yeah. Thank you, John. Um, so uh, check out uh, the rest of our podcasts at uh, www.trueambition.org. And we'll see you next time. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I-